Anyway, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles this evening to First uh, Chronicles chapter 22. First Chronicles 22. Last week, of course, we looked at chapter 21, and it was a time toward the latter part of David's life where he numbered the children of Israel, and, and David was one of these individuals that he was, uh, he, w- he really had a, a great heart, this man of God, and that's why the Bible tells him that he was a man after God's own heart. He's also been known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, and um, a man after God's own heart, just a, a unique king in Judah, and yet he wasn't without his faults, of course, and none of us are, as, as straight of a line as we attempt to make, every one of us has something about us that's just, that needs to be continually conformed to the image of Christ, maybe um, whatever it is, and, and we all have it, and David had weaknesses, and he had sinned, you remember, with Bathsheba and then killing her husband Uriah to cover up the pregnancy. And David's life was never really the same after that, although I think in many ways it became richer and deeper because of his brokenness and because of his dependence upon the Lord. And then years go by and the sword would not depart from his house. There'd be all kinds of turmoil in his home and in his family. And we've read all about that as we've gone through First and Second Samuel. And now David comes to the end of his time here on earth. And perhaps sensing that good days were coming and the enemies had been conquered. And David perhaps feeling a little bit proud of his military prowess and his military... Um, and so what does he do? He... He asked Joab, his general, to go and to count the people of Israel. And Joab knew that that wasn't a right thing to do. And God had taken a census of Israel, but it was for different purposes. Many, many years ago, when they were uh, in the desert, uh, God had had Moses take a census, but it was to understand the the, the men of war and to engage them in that. But this was strictly just a a heart attitude of David feeling proud and kind of resting on his lees in a sense. And God wasn't going to let him get away with it. And you remember that God brings a plague upon Israel. And ultimately, 70,000 men would, would die in that plague. And it was because of David's sin. It almost seems unfair, doesn't it? But Isn't it true that our sins, the sin of our lives, are are not just contained within us? They affect other people. You know, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict or you're committing adultery or whatever it is, you affect other people. Our our sin doesn't just keep, doesn't, is not isolated to us. It affects everyone. And and if nothing else, when we come in here, if if we're completely given over to sin, we come in here and we don't we don't have anything to give, right? Because we're ashamed of what we've done, or we're ashamed of something in our life, and so we, 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 our, our, our glass is kind of cloudy, and God can't use us in quite the way he would like to, because of our sin, and because of our guilt and our shame. And so David, he, all these men uh, uh, die on behalf of, uh, for what he has done, at the very least, 
And then the angel of, of God is over Jerusalem, and he begins destroying over Jerusalem. And then David, uh, God uh, encourages David, commands him to go and to the threshing floor of Aruna, or Ornan, as he is referred to in this passage. And Ornan was so excited and, and loved David, had such a respect for him. He says, David, if you want to build an altar here on top of Mount Moriah, I'll give you the oxen, I'll give you the wood, the instruments, everything you need for the altar. And by the way, I'll give you all the land if you want it too. It's all yours. And remember that wonderful thing that David said. He says, I can't do it because it costs me nothing. I'm not going to worship God in a way that's going to cost me nothing. Because remember, at the heart of worship is sacrifice. Never forget that. True worship, at the foundation of it, is sacrifice. And that can even include when we come in here, too. You know, maybe you come in and you're not, your heart is just not ready to sing. Maybe you're dealing, you're still wrestling with something from work or at home, and you come in here and you're just like, you're just kind of going through the motions, and that's okay. But sometimes it's good just to open your mouth and say, Lord, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to let this be a sacrifice of praise to you. Because even though, and the devil will call you a hypocrite, and your own flesh will call you a hypocrite, don't pay any matter to him. Because the truth of the matter is, regardless of whether we feel it or not, doesn't God, doesn't Jesus Christ deserve our worship? He deserves our worship, regardless of how I feel, even about myself. Even after a horrible sin that I've committed, he deserves to be worshipped. It makes no difference. The worship, he, he deserves that, regardless of my feelings. Be careful of feelings. But now we get into this next chapter. So David is still smarting over the sin of his. And I've entitled tonight's message. Uh, I don't usually give titles to uh, uh, messages on, on Thursday nights, especially. But I call this laying up for the children. Laying up for the children. And let me read to you a passage in 2 Corinthians, beginning in twelve, chapter 12, verse 14. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church and speaking about money and exchanges of gifts and stuff like that, Paul actually said this to them. He said, For the children ought not, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And so since the beginning of time, there has been in the scripture this idea of parents laying up for their children. In other words, laying up their stores, their wealth, if you will. And, and this has happened through uh, all throughout the Genesis, as we've seen Abraham passing away, and then his son Isaac inheriting everything. And they were very wealthy uh, herdsmen and landowners, and so this was, this was significant. And, and the father would lay up for the son, and then Isaac would, would lay up for Jacob, and, and so on and so it would go. And, and even the firstborn would get a double portion of the father's inheritance. And that was always the way it's been, to lay up the children, or, or the, the parents laying up for the children. The parents laying up for the children, not the other way around. And obviously this was done and, and, uh, to prepare and help the, the children when they get of age to give them a leg up or a head start with some aid in life. Because isn't life hard? I mean, life is hard. I mean, even in this country, the land of opportunity, everybody who has done well has worked hard 
and they've been rewarded for it. It's one of the blessings of America. If you come and you want to work hard, you can make it. Right? But we have to work hard to sustain life, right? It, it all goes back to the very beginning uh, with the curse of Adam. What, what did God tell him? And, and, and we have to work really hard. He says, because of, you heeded the voice of your wife, Adam, and you've eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And that is, that is true up to this day. We have to work hard and it's just like my, my wife was out in our, in our garden or on our uh, side of our house and, and side of our yard. There's a candy tuft and a bunch of stuff. And, and the weeds, it's just a constant, constant battle. And, and it's like if I was out there, I'd be pulling out weeds and I'd be screaming at Adam under my breath. Adam! You know, you have to work really hard. Of course, if it wasn't Adam, it would have been me. If I was back in the garden, I would have sinned probably quicker than Adam would. But, it, but it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the curse. And so we have to work hard. But remember that David had it in his heart, remember, to build a temple. We saw this back in the 17th chapter, just a few chapters ago. He had it in his heart to build a temple, but God forbade him from doing so, but told him that his son would build the temple. And I'd like to just read to you, this is First Chronicles 17, I'm just going to read to you a handful of verses here just to kind of refresh our memory here because it'll, it'll set the stage for the rest of the evening. So God tells the, the prophet, go and tell my servant David, and this is in verse 4 of First Chronicles 17, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day. But have gone from tent to tent and from tabernacle to another. Wherever have I moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue all your enemies, David. And furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. Now, I bring up this verse, this passage, quite a bit as we've been going through Chronicles. And I do it for a good reason, because you'll probably never forget it. The Davidic covenant, a covenant that God made with David. And, and, and God tells him, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house, and not a physical house necessarily, but a heritage and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, David, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you, and I will establish him in the house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." And so obviously in the, um, in the very near term for David at that time, the Lord was speaking of Solomon, 
the, the fruit from his own loins, his own son, would begin, and it would be a single, it would be a, a unique dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. There was no break in the dynasty of David and Judah. Unlike Israel and the northern ten tribes, they had nine different dynasties. The southern tribe, the southern um, country had uh, a single dynasty, a David and his son and his son and his son. It was unbroken all the way till Zedekiah. But remember, David's heart was, well, God, if you're telling me that I can't build a temple, then I'm going to do everything in my power for my son, so that when he is old enough and ready to build it, he will have everything he needs. That's why I labeled this passage that we're going to look at, laying up for, this, for the children. Because here's David, a father, laying up for his son, knowing what's coming, knowing what God had commanded him, and wanting to be a part of it somehow. If he couldn't build it, he wanted to do everything he could to give Solomon a great head start and a leg up. And wow, what, a, what an incredible head start he gave him. We're going to look at some of the numbers here shortly, and it's, it's baffling. And see, this is a great heart that David had, and a heart that we should strive for as well, but with wisdom and discernment. And what do I mean by that? You know, there are dangers of having wills. I've heard of really wealthy people having millions of dollars, and then they put it into, they have one or two kids, and they give all the money to them, all their holdings, all their real estate, and, and, and their kids inherit these huge sums of money right from as soon as their parents pass away. And they're young enough, and they're not very smart, and so they, they get involved in drugs, and they blow it on stupid stuff. And this happens all the time, by the way. But some wealthy people, or, or even some average folks or whatever who have wills, they have lawyers and accountants and they set up trust funds. They set up funds that can only be dispersed when the, when the children get to be a certain amount of age and also under only certain circumstances can they use that money. They can't just go hog wild and they don't get a big lump sum. It's, it's graduated over time and hopefully during that time the child learns to manage money and hopefully the parent has done enough to encourage that child to respect what money is and how to use it and how to be good stewards of it. And we should be the willing to do the same like David did, to lay up and store for the children. I'd like to read, uh, if you look back in the last five verses of, of the last chapter in chapter 21, I'd like to read that to you. Before we get into it, notice verse 26 of 1 Chronicles 21. It says, And David built there an altar to the Lord, meaning on Mount Moriah at, at the threshing floor of Ornan, or Aruna, as it's referred to in uh, 2 Samuel. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on Jehovah. And he, God, notice this, underline this, he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. I want you to think about that for a minute. I mean, seeing the angel over Jerusalem with his sword drawn would be a, a, a fearful enough sight. But then for David to, uh, to stop the plague and to offer an offering on that altar right there on, on the threshing floor, and then for God to answer by fire and consume what was on the altar. He didn't have to light it, do you understand? 
And this is significant. Very significant. It's very reminiscent of what happened when Elijah, remember when he faced off with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember that? Israel became confused. Who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve Baal or are we going to serve Jehovah? And all the prophets of Baal began to cut themselves and dance around with their little loincloths and they're, and they're bleeding, gushing out blood, trying to get their God to answer to, and, and then to, you know, to, to do that. And, and, and Elijah calls on Jehovah and God Almighty comes down and he consumes the flame, he consumes the altar and he licks up the water because they pour water all over it. And God came down in fire and took everything, took it. Amazing. He answered by fire from heaven. If that doesn't increase your prayer life, I don't know what will. Because if I saw that, I'd probably be, still be, my nose would be inhaling dust because my face would be hitting the ground, right? Amazing. And so the Lord commanded the angel and returned his sword to its sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him, on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. Remember that. That was going to be the place. That was going to be the place from then on. That was going to be the place. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And so let's go ahead and look at chapter 22 here. Notice it says that then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now this is interesting because no doubt that because the Lord had uh, come down in fire from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, that David knew that this was where the altar for the new temple should be built. And David would no longer go to worship at Gibeon, but here on Aruna or Ornan's threshing floor. And uh, uh, this place called um, uh, Gibeon is just about eight miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is here on the uh, western, uh, western shore of the Dead Sea. And then about eight miles up north, uh, west, you'll come to Gibeon. And this is the place, remember, where Moses' tabernacle was. And it was falling apart. And yet in it was the, uh, all the elements uh, of the tabernacle minus the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant, remember, at this time was in Jerusalem or in Zion with David. And David had pitched for a tabernacle just for it alone. And so everybody used to go to Gibeon because that's where the altar was. They would go there to sacrifice. But David wanted the ark right next to him. And I'm, I'm certain that it was probably right there next to his palace somewhere in the vicinity. And David had it there. And, um, and, and notice that David was commanded by God to do this um, to build this altar on Aruna's threshing floor. It tells us that in the 18th verse of this last chapter, in chapter 21. And, um, and remember what God had said to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. He told them that these are the statutes. This is Deuteronomy chapter 12. God speaking to the children of Israel. So these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you to possess 
all the days that you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall possess, dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God from, with such things. But you shall seek the place. Notice here. He says, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. Well, I think God just told David where it was supposed to be. And he knew it because when he built that altar and and the plague was stayed because of the, the sacrifice that God spoke and answered with fire from heaven. At that point, David was done. He's like, I'm going nowhere else. I'm going nowhere else. I'm not going to Gibeon at the, at the tabernacle. Love the tabernacle, nothing against it. But he answered right here, and this is where I'm staying. I've never seen that anywhere else, but here he did, and I'm going to sit here at God's feet. And that was something that God told Israel many, many years prior. He says, where I tell you to put it, you put it. And God told David to go and make an altar at Aruna's or Ornan's threshing floor. And he did. He just simply obeyed. He didn't argue with God. You notice that? He just simply did what God said. You know? And great things happen when we obey God. Great things happen when we don't try to figure it out ourselves or make an alternate plan if it doesn't come out. You know, God, I think my plan is a more direct route. We can do it much quicker and, and, and is in quicker time and with less money you got to be good with that. And God's like, no, I'm not. I don't care if it took a million dollars to get there because the journey is where I'm changing you. I'm changing your heart in the process of all this. I'm not worried about the money. Trust me, God is not worried about money. We, we worry about money. He's like, I'm gonna, you're going to walk on this. The, the gold in, 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 in the New Jerusalem is going to be so refined and so clear, it's going to be like glass. You're going to walk on it, folks. It's not a big thing for God. But he said, in this place. So, and remember, Moses' tabernacle was in Gibeon. And all of the articles of the tabernacle were there in Gibeon. Again, except for the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, remember, was in Zion with David. In Zion. And this is a, 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 a map of, of, of Jerusalem in the time of David, and right there would be David's palace. So somewhere in this area would be, you know, this uh, this tent that that David made for the Ark of the Covenant. And right up here is Mount Moriah. There's the threshing floor of of Ornan, and this is where David made that altar, made that sacrifice. And it was the same location, we believe, as when Abraham offered Isaac, the very same spot. And that, that's, to me, that's no coincidence. I think God was trying to say something, even back in Genesis 22. You can read about it. He says, go up to the mountains, mountain range of Moriah, to a place that I will tell you. And when you get there, take your son, your only son, and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice. And so you remember, Abraham attempted to do that. And thank God, the, the, the Lord intervened, because human sacrifice was a pagan thing. God would never do that. But Abraham believed him. He's like, well, you've promised me that through my seed, all the world is going to be blessed, and through my seed is going to come the Messiah. And if I kill him, you've got to do a greater miracle and raise him from the dead. God believed him. 
and God counted it to him for righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? It tells us that in Genesis 15. And so, verse 2, So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. These aliens would be foreigners, people, uh, Canaanites, if you will, uh, Gentiles from surrounding areas that they had taken uh, tribute and, and, and taken as uh, slaves, if you will, or hired workers, forced workers. And the Phoenician people... Uh, that he mentions here, these were the folks that cut um, stone, and they were excellent at it. They had uh, great skill in cutting stone. And then in verse 3, David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors and the gates for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And Tyre and Sidon, if you were to look at a map, this is the Sea of Galilee here, and up and right on the coast of the Mediterranean is Tyre, and then up north of that further is Sidon. And this is in modern-day Lebanon, and uh, that's still named Tyre to this day. Uh, This one has a little bit different of a name. But this is the place where David got these trees in abundance from Hiram, the, the king of Tyre and Sidon. And all those materials that he brought would be used to make the temple. And I would encourage you, when you get some time, look at 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And, and it's when Solomon began to build the temple and all the materials that he had. It's really quite fascinating. So in verse 5, back in our text, it says, Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. He was very young at this time. And the house to be built for the Lord, notice, underline this, must be exceedingly magnificent. Underline that. It must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now prepare for it. I'll make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Now notice that this temple, in David's estimation, it had to be exceedingly magnificent. It had to be. David would not have the temple of the God of all creation be some shabby shack there on top of Mount Moriah. No, he wasn't going to do some half-baked effort. He was going to put everything into it. Everything was on the table, in a sense. And I love that because David was a worshiper. He was a worshiper, this man. And where did he learn to worship? Out in the fields with his sheep when he was just a young boy. He'd sit out there underneath the stars and he probably had some kind of lyre or a little um, you know, harp kind of guitar-like instrument. He'd love, probably love something like that. Just put it around his neck and as he goes, he'd just sing. David was a worshiper and God loved him for it. Out there where nobody could hear, where he was just singing to his God. Have you ever done that? Just sing to your God when nobody's around? And maybe even find, you know, find a place where you can go and just sing to the Lord. And most of us do it in our cars until we stop at a traffic light and we're singing our guts out. And then you look over next to you and there's somebody staring right at you going, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Right? And you're singing your heart out. Car's a great place to do it. I'd encourage you to go East. On five and on, on, uh, on Browncroft, just keep going east. You'll run into uh, Gananda. Just keep going and sing your heart out until you run into the end of it, and then come back. Okay. But after all, isn't God worth it? 
putting all of that, re, all those resources, isn't God worth it? And what has the Lord done for you? Think about this. The most significant thing that Jesus has done for you is forgiving your sin and then indwelling you with his Holy Spirit and then giving you the blessed hope, the hope of the rapture, and then the hope of eternity which awaits us. He's given us all those things. That's a pretty big deal. You can't, people would give their money, everything they've got, if they could be secure in heaven. And God says you can't get there through paying, you know, an admittance fee. You have to be born into my kingdom. You have to be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you've got all, your, you got all the fancy robes, you can quote all the scriptures, but you're dead inside. You must be born again. Or else you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. But David's attitude uh, ought to be our attitude for the things that we do for the Lord. You know, he's forgiven us. He saved our soul from eternal damnation. Yes, he saved us from hell. Most churches don't like to talk about hell, but we talk about hell, hell here at Calvary because it's real and it's biblical. And Jesus taught more about hell than anybody else. Hell was what got me into the kingdom. The, the understanding of hell, it scared me to death. I came to Christ because I was scared to go to hell. That's a pretty good reason. And then when he saved my soul, I, I grew in my relationship with him and loved him. And now I'm not afraid in that sense. I, I fear him, but in a reverence. But I'm not afraid of him. I, I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm not perfect, but I, I know that I've been saved. And he's still working. He's working in us. I love it what it says, you know, um, you know in Colossians 3.17, you know, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. And this was David's attitude. And even Psalm 50, <laughs> I love this. Let all things, it says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That means everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And again, how awesome is this? David was chastened by the Lord now the second time and still had a great fervor and a desire for the Lord to see God's will done. And, and David was wounded very deeply by this sin of his that caused 70,000 men to die. He was very wounded because of his sin. But notice, the scripture doesn't tell us that he had a pity party and he gave up. Rather, he pulled himself up by the bootstraps and he got going again. What does it tell us in Proverbs? For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. In Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And see, that's David. He was beaten down, feeling very low, and then all of a sudden he's like, you know what? I'm not going to let my sin rob me of the joy. And I would encourage you to not let your sin rob you of your joy. Confess it. Be sincere in your repentance. Turning from it. And then get back to business because he has cast your sin as far away as east is from the west. 
He's thrown it into the depths of the sea. He'll never look upon it again, only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason God is able and willing to do it, is only through the blood. You have the blood of Christ on you, upon you. If you do, then he'll never look upon your sins. Just confess it, and then, and then be free of the guilt even, and then continue to walk with him. Yes, it breaks your heart, and it should break your heart, but you don't need to be walking around for three days, and, go, <laughs> and then you're just totally wiped out. Confess it and be done with it. And if you fall again, you confess it and you get up and you keep walking. And if you fall and you confess, get up and start walking again. Don't let the devil beat you up and say you're finished. Here's your pink slip. You're done. God's not going to do that. He loves you too much. The Spirit of Christ is in you if you're a believer in Christ. And if the Spirit of God is not in you, then you are not a Christian. Let me repeat that. If the Spirit of God is not in you, you are not a Christian. That's what the Bible says. It is, it is true. And that's why it's important to be born again. Just simply call on him and say, Lord, forgive me and, and come into my life, Lord, and fill me and take all of me. Just do it. Receive Christ. Receive the Spirit of God. He loves you so much. And when you do, you'll know it. And he will begin opening your heart to the scripture like never before. He'll begin giving you boldness where you had none. He'll begin giving you um, uh, strength and, and encouragement when you had none. And he will give you boldness and, and the ability to turn away from sins that you would normally just cave in every single time. Without, without, uh, every single time you would just cave in. And the spirit of God's going, don't do it. You know how you feel. You know how this separates you from God. Oh, thank God. And then you walk away from it and you feel better and you're like, this thing doesn't have dominion any longer over me. This sin has no more dominion over me anymore and it's because of the presence of the Spirit of God in you. That's biblical. You can read John 14 through 16 and the, the work of the Holy Spirit is very poignant in those chapters. He will be with you, he'll be in you, and then he will come upon you. We don't have time to go into all that tonight, but be encouraged. And David was encouraged after all this. He's like, I'm not going to allow this to beat me up. I'm going to do everything I can to help my son. I'm going to lay up for my son everything that he needs. So now, verses 6 through 16 is now David addressing his son Solomon. Let's read it together. It says, Then he called to his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. And, and, and again, this original event when God told him, it's recorded for us, Second Samuel chapter 7, and also in First Chronicles 17, we just read it. And then David later on would retell and rehearse those events that happened back at that time. He does it in 1 Chronicles 28 before his death. And we'll see that in a few weeks. But verse 8, it says, But the word of the Lord came to me, David said, saying, You have shed, and here's the reason why David couldn't build the temple. Was David able to do it? Of course he was. He was able physically, but God says, David, I love you, and the wars that you fought were all valid, and I gave you victory. However, your hands are filled with blood. You're a man of war. I'm not going to have you build a house of peace in Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of the great king. I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. 
but I'm going to allow your son Solomon, whose name means peaceable or peace. That's what, Shalom in, 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 in Hebrew means peace. And he named his son Solomon, a variant of that. You have shed much blood and have made great wars, God said. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. Notice that. Underline that. Man of rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And the Lord was faithful to this promise. Because those 40 years after David passed from the scene, those 40 years afterward were times of peace for Israel. They were the golden years of Israel. There was never a time in Israel's history, even to this day, that time, that 40 years under Solomon was the goat. (laughs) It was the greatest of all time. For Israel, it was the goat. That was it. They had peace all around. They were fat and wealthy and happy. They were worshiping their God. And Solomon had some issues, and you know we'll, we'll talk about that. But it was a time of peace, unparalleled in any other time in Israel's history. Even now, they don't have peace. And certainly not back in the 90s when the Intifada was happening with the Arabs from uh, Gaza and other areas, Beirut and all the, Lebanon and Hamas, and they're always being bombarded. Now, my son, he says in verse 11, may the Lord be with you and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only, verse 12, and underline this, may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. Underline that. That's a really important phrase and I'll explain why in just a second. Only may the Lord give you, Solomon, wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. And the Lord answered David's prayer. And he did give Solomon this wisdom. Uh, You might want to write in the margin of your Bible 1 Kings chapter 3. Verses 4 through 14, I'm going to read them to you because God gave to Solomon this wisdom. He answered the prayer of David's prayer. He answered David's prayer when David said, May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. And that's exactly what God did. Let me read it to you. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. It says, Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was a great high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Again, this is after David had passed away. At Gibeon, remember, they're still um, uh, doing things there at Gibeon, even though David uh, didn't. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God says, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant, notice this, underline this, or or just remember this passage and go back and underline it. 
Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Do you understand what happened here? David prayed for Solomon. And then Solomon, when, when God basically gave him a blank check and said, what do you want? He goes, I need understanding and wisdom. It was almost irresistible to God. He's like, oh my goodness, I, I, I've been waiting for this. I heard your father's prayer, and now I'm looking at your heart, Solomon, and I am blown away. God knew it, of course. I'm so, I so love you, Solomon, for making a statement like that. He goes, in the speech, verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And then God said to him, and I love this, this is so like God, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be anyone like you arise after you. And I have also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my way, Solomon, here's the warning, right? God does all these wonderful things for him. And he puts a little caveat at the, at the, at the, in verse 14. He says, So if you walk in my ways, remember, Solomon, I'm doing all of this, but you need to walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, and then I will lengthen your days. Solomon only lived to be 70. I wonder how much longer he would have lived if he hadn't have allowed his wives to, he had a thousand wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines, something like that. Quite a few women in his life. A lot of flowers, a lot of candy, a lot of diamonds. How you doing, honey? What's your name? And so they turn away his heart. He builds altars for all these foreign gods of these women and God, and he starts falling away, Solomon. In this time, this golden era, of Israel and, and Solomon. And then, thank God, Solomon comes around. And then, as he's coming to his senses, what does he write? He writes the book of Ecclesiastes, explaining his folly and how the Lord brought him through it. A wonderful book. It's, it starts off kind of depressing, but at the end, you know that Solomon got the point. And he had experienced everything, the ups and the downs, everything in between. He's like, at the end of it all, worship God. He, he alone is worthy. Worship him. I played a fool. I've been an idiot. Have you ever been an idiot? I've been an idiot. Thank you. I feel, I feel comfortable. I, I, I'm not the only one in the room who's an idiot. I have. I've been an idiot. David was an idiot. And then he goes down in verse 13, back in our text here. He goes, then you shall prosper. He, so David is telling this to Solomon. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and the judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel, be strong and of a good courage, do not, do not fear nor be dismayed. And, and again, we know later on that Solomon did fall, but then he finally came back to the Lord. And then in verse 14, notice, Indeed, I have taken much trouble, David says, to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant... I have prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. Oh, by the way, I've given you more than enough, but if you want to add to it, praise the Lord. Isn't he worthy? 
Make everything out of solid gold. He is worthy. I love that. Now, I just want to show you something, the great wealth that David had taken from all these kingdoms around him in his battles. He took all those materials, all all those spoils from war. And let me just tell you just the gold that he mentions here. He says 100,000 talents of gold. Let's just look at that, and that's all we're going to look at. We're not going to go into the other stuff. 1,000 talents of gold would be worth this amount. As of today, gold is going for $1,882 an ounce. You times that by 16, it's $30,112 per pound. You times that by a ton, and that's $60,224,000 per ton. And then there was 3,750 tons, or 100,000 talents, which comes to a whopping total. Cha-ching! About 225 billion, 840 million, and some estimates even go higher than that. Some say it's actually somewhere between 225 billion and 394 billion dollars. And that's just the gold, not talking about silver. And by the way, Solomon, if you want, you can add more to it. Thanks, Dad. I don't think I've got enough, though. Are you sure, son? (laughs) And that's just the gold. Moreover, verse 15, they're uh, the workmen. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance. So notice what David's doing. He's providing everything. He says, moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. And can I just tell you, we have men like that in our fellowship. Skillful men in all kinds of things. And you've seen some of the the things that men in our fellowship have done. There's a handful of guys in our fellowship, you know, all each had their part in all of this. They did that. And it's not done yet, but it will be. About three weeks. But we have men like that, gifted. I don't have those gifts. My gifts are different, but they have wonderful gifts. I, I love their gifts. And I love hanging, out, hanging around with them and learning stuff. I learned something today when he was putting tape on, the, on, on and how he did it and what he did. He was explaining it to me, and I'm just like, wow. Never even thought of that. And I've done this kind of stuff before, and it never turns out very well because I'm a musician, you know, one of those weirdos. But God gave to Solomon, or David gave to Solomon. He made sure and people like Bezalel and Aholiab. Remember these men who were instrumental in the building of the tabernacle in Moses' day? I would encourage you to look at Exodus 35, uh, verse 30, going into uh, chapter 36, verse 1, because it talks about these two men who are very gifted in all kinds of things. Bezalel and Aholiab, just like the men here that David's talking about. He goes, I've given you all the gold. All the men are here. They're waiting, Solomon. When you're ready, everything, I've given you the blueprints, everything is going to be ready for you. And then you're going to have people like Bezalel, and you're going to have people like Aholiab that had skill in all kinds of gems and gold and metallurgy and all this stuff. I got it all for you, son. And arise, he says in verse 16, and begin working, and the Lord will be with you. Notice the confidence in David. And so David also commanded all the leaders of Israel 
to help Solomon, his son. Notice that. He commanded all of the leaders of Israel to help Solomon build this temple. David commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and that land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. And, and those who would help Solomon in building the temple, we're going to be looking at them in the next couple of weeks because uh, chapters, we're in chapter 22 right now, but if you look and see chapters 23 through 27 is chronicling for us, listing the, the Levites and, and, and the, everybody who's going to be involved in this. Verse 19, our last verse. So David says to Solomon, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God, to seek Jehovah. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. And remember... There with David in, in this area, uh, let me just go back to this uh, diagram here. You know, David is, is, is living, uh, you know, in this, uh, in this palace. He's living there and he's got the Ark of the Covenant in a tent nearby. But the rest of the articles, you know, the, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the, the lampstand or the menorah, all of those things are still in Gabeon. They're still up about eight miles northwest. And so David's like, bring all of that back. You build this temple. You take the ark from next to me, Dave, or next to me Solomon. You take that because now it's your house. You take that Ark of the Covenant, when you build the temple, you put it in its right place, in the Holy of Holies, and then have the veil, and then bring all those articles from Gabeon, bring them all in, and put them in their right place. And so he does. And I can't wait for us to get later on in Chronicles where we see Solomon finally finishing the project, finishing it all. Can you imagine the joy in Israel? I mean, it is a, the, the watershed moment in their history. No longer would they be wandering around in a tent, in a tabernacle, worshiping God through you know, 40 years wandering around in the desert. No, now they would have a, a one place that God had told him. God told David, this is the place. This is the altar. And notice something interesting about this. When God told David that it was the site of the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan, that that was the, the place for the altar. And why the altar? He didn't even say the Ark of the Covenant. He goes, the altar, I'll meet you there. That's where worship really begins, is at the altar. That's the most, arguably, the most important piece of this whole thing. Before you approach me, the shedding of innocent blood has to be made because you are unholy. The threshing floor, the altar... And it was almost like, can you imagine as they were building the temple, they had the, 
altar there at Runa's threshing floor, and they're like, okay, we're going to build around this thing. So how far do we got to go out? Let's look at the blueprint. Okay, we got to go out, you know, 60 cubits. And then they start laying the foundation around the altar. Do you see? It's all about the altar. They build around it. I wonder if that's the way it happened. It seems like it. And it wouldn't surprise me because at the center, a temple is a temple because sacrifices are done there. Anywhere over in the ancient Orient, in time immemorial, wherever there was a temple, it's because, it was called a temple because there were sacrifices that took place. If sacrifices weren't taking place, it was not called a temple. But this temple that God made says, that is going to be where I'll meet you. I'm going to meet you at the altar. I'm going to deal, let's deal with the sin. And, and it's really no different for us today, right? God says, come in and I'll meet you at the mercy seat, right? That the Ark of the Covenant, there was a, uh, it was a gold box. And remember, the angels uh, were wreathed in gold, and they, they looked down upon the mercy seat. And one time a year, the, the high priest would take blood, and he would come in, blood of an animal, of a lamb, and he would sprinkle it on that mercy seat. And God says, that's where I'll meet you. I'll meet you there, because that is where. And Jesus is the mercy seat. He's the one who sacrificed himself, his blood. Hebrews tells us that, doesn't it? That Christ was the mercy seat. And unlike the Mosaic law, which they, every year they would offer blood once on that mercy seat, unlike that, the blood of Christ will be offered once, period. Once and for all. Once and for all. No longer needing to, for Christ to be sacrificed again and again and again and again. No, it would happen once, folks. It was pure. It was holy. It was sufficient. It was adequate. It was everything. It was the very blood of God. And God says, that's it. There's nothing more to do. Believe on the one who shed his blood my son, who died in your place. So let me ask you the question, then we'll, we'll stop. I'm actually five minutes early. Can I get a hallelujah? Usually I'm taking you guys ten minutes afterwards and, and, and frustrating grace. And some of you meet me out in the parking lot with knives, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just go to 55 minutes, just don't cut me. No, but think about it. Are you a believer in Christ? Has the blood of Christ touched your life? Is it blood upon you? Because if it is, then you're a believer. If you've confessed your sin and you believe that what he did on the cross was sufficient, and it is, all we have to do, it's a very simple thing, yet the most profound thing in human history is that God, Almighty God, the one who made everything, he's the one who came and tabernacled among us. Isn't that what John's gospel tells us? That he became, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Son of, of the Father, full of grace and truth. So do you believe on this Jesus? I'm looking around the room and I know that most of us, perhaps all of us, do. 
But can I encourage you to encourage someone else with that truth? This week, this weekend, would you consider bringing someone to church next week? Grab a friend, a neighbor, another family member. Say, hey, you just got to come. Just bring them. Because they need the same life-changing message that changed our lives, right? They need to hear the same thing. And isn't, isn't it a joy to hear it again? Isn't it a joy to hear it again? And to believe and to know that you are secure eternally with all of your issues and struggles and God will never give up on you. And maybe you're here tonight and you're, you've, been, you've had a really bad week or maybe you've had a really bad day and maybe you're just at the edge and you're like, Lord, I don't know if I, 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 don't know if I can believe this anymore. I want to let you know that the Lord loves you and I pray that he opens your heart. Only he can do it. Only he can do it by his spirit. No man can make that happen. I can't make it happen. I'm just a, I'm just a delivery boy. I'm just a paper boy. I just deliver the message. God does the rest and he does a great job. Bible says his word will never return void. So I pray that you'd be encouraged by that and just draw close to him and even for those of you who are, have known the Lord sometime, just let's get our hearts right with him again. Say, Lord, wash me clean again and help me just to rejoice in your presence again. Help me to go down Browncroft and just keep going east and help me turn up the radio and sing my heart out. And just glorify your name. When's the last time we did that? Sometimes life can get so serious. I'll tell you, the last couple of years, I've gotten really serious. You can ask my wife. I used to be a... I'm, I'm getting my goofiness back, which is actually a good thing. But for a couple years, myself and probably some of you as well, we just lived under this dark cloud. And it was my own fault that I allowed it to happen. But God wants to take that and just tear it back and say, just love me and enjoy yourself, Rob, in my presence. Just love me and let me love you and walk with me. And can we do that together? Let's stand together. Lord, uh, you invite us. You invite us. And Lord, we, we want to come. And I pray that each one of us would come in our own time, in our own way. And Lord, you speak to us in such wonderful ways, individually, such sweet ways, unique and different from everybody else. And Lord, I just I thank you for your word. I thank you for, for David. I thank you for Solomon. I thank you for the fact that you recorded all of this for us and that we can be encouraged in it and grow. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, that you would just lighten their load, lighten the, the, the things that are in their life that are weighing them down. Lord, lighten the persecution, lighten the spiritual warfare. Lord, allow us to sing again and to have just smiles on our faces. Lord, it's all about you, and we're so glad to be here. 
And Lord, to you alone be the glory and the honor and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. See you Sunday.